Let's please give a warm round of applause to Aditi. Thank you so much. I um, This is one of the more terrifying things I have ever done in my life. And I actually, for many, many years, moderated focus groups for a living. So public speaking is, is not usually an issue for me. But this is terrifying. But hearing those lovely words and see, looking out into the audience, I mean, I feel like pretty much almost everyone I love is in this room right now. So thank you so much for coming. It just means the world to me. Um, my parents came all the way from the East Coast. My best friend is here from New Orleans. Uh, many of you have braved the LA traffic and the heat to come all the way here, and it just means the absolute world to me. So thank you. Thank you for coming, but thank you for also being in my life. Um, it just, you're all, most of you who I know at least are wonderful. Um, <laughs> And I also want to thank Skylight Books because this has been my neighborhood bookstore for the past, it's going to be, I will have lived in LA for 13 years in August, so it'll be my 13 year anniversary. And um, this is the place that I've come to for um, new discoveries and solace and a sense of community and I've always found it here, so thank you, uh, Skylight Books. I was actually here for a reading a few days ago with my friend Julie who's sitting in the audience and it was Emma Klein and we watched her kind of like descend the stairs which is a really really nice touch I think um, and I turned to Julie and I was like I've been coming to this bookstore for like over a decade and I don't know what's up there and she was like she was like maybe they'll take you and so I got to go and it's I, I promised I wouldn't tell but um, I'm going to read for about 10 minutes, and then we're going to do, I guess, a brief Q&A. Um, so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that now. Um, okay. Let me just get settled there, and let's okay. put this, make it a little easier here. could have been the kind of story that came and went, eclipsed by another news cycle. But what my mother experienced as a transcendent moment of amazement at the idea of another world like ours so far, far away turned out to be only the exterior of a package, labeled, stamped, and sent to us with a kind of precision and foresight we might have expected from the cosmos had we been the sort to believe in things like symmetry and order and yet its content still remained a mystery. I went to buy school supplies with my father the next day. We parked in front of a newsstand on Lewis Street, the trashier rags filled with the large font declarations like Alien Planet Discovered, while the New York Times furnished a complex diagram of the Milky Way on its front page. My father picked up a copy of the Times and I watched him as he shook open the oversized leaves of paper, smoothing out the center crease with his fingertip as we walked. Tara, I know you're sad about Meg leaving, he said without looking up. I shrugged. Every year since the sixth grade, I had gone back to school shopping with Meg. We'd buy outfits together at rags, pencils and notebooks at the stationery shop at the bottom of the Ave, even order our backpacks together months in advance of the first day of school. It made the experience of returning far less dreadful, maybe even fun. But Meg was shopping for different supplies this year. Spanish-English dictionaries, voltage converters, sunscreen, and racy lingerie. When I thought about this shopping list, I felt a pang of betrayal. 
At the stationery store on Greenwich Avenue, I walk past the handmade cards and carbon-colored stacks of moleskins, each sealed with a fluorescent lime-colored scrap of authentication. My father followed me into the pen section. I know how difficult it can be to make new friends, he said tentatively. It was difficult for me when I first came to the United States. I know, Dad. I didn't want to discuss it with him, any of it. I didn't want to tell him how hard it was, how I felt as though I would never fit in. I never had, not since we had arrived in Connecticut in the fifth grade. For one thing, I looked different. My father was Indian and my mother white. We had moved here so my father could open his own restaurant after years of working in the kitchen at someone else's, and also so I could attend Briarly. We're both making a new start, he had told me as we packed the last of our belongings into oversized cardboard cartons, our entire history as a family fitting neatly into the back of a small Penske truck. We'll have a much better life in Connecticut. You'll be able to ride a bike to school, and we'll even have a backyard. This was how the suburbs had always been sold to city kids, even though I couldn't care less about being able to ride a bike. And what could I have even needed a backyard for? I was a bookworm even then, my nose perpetually buried in some new subject or another. This was another reason my parents wanted to move to Connecticut. I would do well in middle school and eventually be able to attend Briarly. I would have more opportunities to flourish academically in Connecticut. But I had always liked our two-bedroom apartment on the Lower East Side. I liked my friends at the UN school. I didn't mind city living, the fact that brick and cement seemed constantly to be exercising a strategy of encirclement over every green, forcing an occupation of Central Park. I liked the fact that we shared a building with 24 other people. Our neighbors felt like extended family. They had all known me since I was two, and we were there to offer help or advice at a moment's notice. When I got sick, Mrs. Hirschbloom would bring me chicken soup, and when my mother broke her ankle, trying to carry a TV she had found at the Goodwill up the stairs, Kelly Loffman, a recent college graduate in a Teach for America program, had stayed with me, helping me build a helicopter with my Legos while my father took my mother to the ER. In Connecticut, we were all alone, adrift in a sea of whiteness and wealth, and it really did feel like a sea I was drowning in. I felt as though I had to paddle as hard as I could every day just to survive. We were different here. It was obvious from the start. My father and I looked like no one else, for one, and on a near regular basis, tension, hung, tension over money hung over us, a thickly discomfitting humidity sticking to our skin, marking us with its heaviness. But perhaps the worst of it was that here, we had no extended family. We just had us. I think this should do it, I said, handing my father the red plastic basket containing highlighters and pens, loose leaf sheets, and spiral-bound notebooks. Nick and Holly were standing by the newspaper stand when we walked out of the store. She was wearing cutoffs and sandals and a tight white tank top, her golden hair whipping around her face like a blaze. I walked a little faster as we passed them and tried not to make eye contact, as though speed and silence could serve as a much-needed invisibility cloak. But then I heard Nick's slightly throaty voice, Oh, hey, Tara. I was all ready by the car, but I forced myself to turn around. He was resting his elbow on Holly's shoulder. Since last spring, they had been perpetually tied together in a way that made me simultaneously jealous and fascinated. Getting ready for school on Monday, he smiled at us, waving sheepishly at my father, who nodded back in acknowledgement. Holly inspected the newsstand as he talked, her hand resting in his back pocket. Yeah, just getting some supplies, I mumbled, looking away from my father's dusty gray Honda trying to distance myself from a car that must have looked to Holly and Nick like garbage on wheels. Crazy, this stuff with that new galaxy, huh? It's not a galaxy, you idiot, Holly laughed. But her eyes were fixed on him, refusing to acknowledge me. A planet, whatever. My parents have been glued to the TV. Did you hear the news today about the signal? What signal? I asked, genuinely curious now. You haven't heard yet. 
She hasn't heard. He turned to Holly. Check your phone. It's some seriously crazy stuff. I stood before them, tongue-tied and yet unable to look away. It was an unusually hot day and the sidewalk was like a cement baking stone, but the heat somehow complemented them, making them sparkle even more than usual. It was hard not to notice the gleam of sweat on Nick's upper lip, the dewy glow of Holly's decolletage. Yeah, well, I guess I'll see you both Monday. Yeah, junior year, see you there. They seem nice, my father said. They're fine, I said, rummaging through the plastic bag of school supplies to stop my hands from shaking. We pulled into our driveway just as the broadcast cut to a promo for the weekend lineup. We lived in a tiny yellow Cape Cod-style house across, from, across the street from Riverside Station. A lone tree draped the front porch in a curtain of pepperberries. While many of my classmates lived on sprawling estates with driveways that unspooled like black gross grain ribbons, my daily journey from the main street to our front door was a mere few steps. My father gently removed the key from the ignition and turned his head to inspect the edges of our lawn, embroidered with my mother's pink azalea. The expression on his face scared me. He looked around without a glint of recognition in his eyes, as though it was the first time he had ever encountered this particular lawn, this very driveway, as though the home before him wasn't his own. He turned to look at the bay window of our living room, and slowly the recognition of where we were returned to his eyes. Your mother's probably sitting in front of the TV watching all this right now, he commented wryly. I followed his gaze, noticing that the television was indeed on and that my mother was sitting on the sofa before it, her knees drawn up to her chest. Just then my phone rang, Meg's name glowing on the screen. Meg, when should I come over? I have to see you off. Yeah, listen, I know we had plans to meet today, but it's gotten really crazy with packing and stuff. Her tone was flat, and at the sound of it, my heart sank. Really? I can drop off by like for like 10 minutes. I just want to say goodbye. I don't think that's going to work. It's just way too crazy right now. I'm not even done with all my shopping, and I'm headed to the airport tonight, so just want to say bye. Oh, okay, I said. I could hear the defensiveness in my tone, and we were both quiet for a minute before Meg broke the silence. I probably won't call you right away when I get there. I'll be busy with my host family and orientation and all that. Just send me a text to let me know you got in safe, I told her. Then quietly I added, I'll miss you. And I felt the sting of fresh tears in my eyes as I got out of the car, pausing in the drive as my father continued to the door. I could hear Meg take a deep breath before she went on. Listen, I don't want to upset you or anything, but things are going to be different from us, with us from now on, she said. There was a casual flightiness in her voice that made me flinch. Different how, I asked. A lot can happen in a year, Tara, and I think I might come back from Argentina a different person. I just want you to get used to the idea. We might not be the way we were when I return. Are you serious? What the hell is that supposed to mean? I mean, I'm going to be on my own in a foreign city, and you're going to be here. I just don't want you to be hurt, you know, if we grow apart. So you're ditching me? Don't take it the wrong way, okay? And what way am I supposed to take it, Meg? Meg sighed loudly before she continued in a patronizing voice, rushing me off the phone. I don't want to fight, okay? And anyway, I don't have time for drama right now. I've got to go. Maybe I'll send you a postcard, she said before she hung up the phone. I swallowed the lump in my throat. It was pathetic enough admitting to myself that Meg's departure made me a nobody, but growing apart, maybe she would send me a postcard? How could Meg, who had been my best friend since the moment I had arrived in Greenwich, be so heartless? I wanted to cry, but I didn't want to be that person, a junior, crying to myself the day before school started. I ran inside, wanting nothing more than to drown myself in whatever the networks were saying about Terra Nova. In that moment, it was the kind of news that sparkled like a piece of broken glass in the sand, catching the momentary light of the sun, distracting me with its infinitesimal brilliance.
Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. My name's Jolene, and I am actually the director of the Nolan's Film Society, so I'm used to doing film Q&As. She's also my best friend. My first book Q&A, and there's some different rules. But, um, and Aditi and I have known each other for literally half our lives. Literally and, half, if you look at it numerically. <laughs> and met, oddly enough, in a very passionate English seminar freshman year of college. So it's great this is to true. be here and to be with all of you and to be moderating the Q&A. So we're going to try to make this um, conversational. I'm going to kick it off with a question, and then we'll sort of go volley back and forth. Um, but Aditi. Yes, Jolene. <laughs> this novel encompasses so many different worlds, from philosophy, science fiction, and then you're dealing with race and culture and um, class and gender. Um, can you talk about how the story was born and the inception of this book? Yeah. Um my publisher and my editor kind of like, they've always referred to it as a book about ideas, and I think that's sort of accurate because I, um, I like ideas. And I, I, as some, I mean, a lot of my friends are in the audience. As some of you know, I, I love studies, and I'm constantly like collecting facts about like studies in different sort of areas. Um, but really, it's a book about vulnerability, and it's a book about isolation. Um, and I wrote it during a time when uh, I think like when life goes off its prescribed path, you sort of start questioning the other paths you could have taken and the other lives you could have lived. And I was in a place where I had um, quit my job in order to adapt a TV pilot that I had written into a novel. And um, I worked furiously on this novel for like a year and a half and found myself a year and a half later sort of without a job and kind of like the, the book that I had written, no one really wanted it. <laughs> it was like a very, very depressing time. It was really sad. Um, and I was like, what, okay, and I was single for the first time in a decade. I mean, it was really not a good place. And I found myself like sitting on my couch at night watching a lot of Cosmos, like crying <laughs> in a blanket. Um, and so Cosmos was partially the inspiration, like all the conversation about the multiverse and the idea of mirror planets. But it was also, um, during this time is Rains, Rains is right there. So. Um, um, my friend Rains gave me, told me to read um, a Dear Sugar column. It was the ghost ship. Um, what is it called? Do you guys know which one I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, why can't I remember? It's like the ghost ship that didn't carry us, I think mm -hmm. is what it's called. Um, and it's basically about the idea that when you, whenever you choose, when you're sort of ambivalent about a decision and you choose a particular life path, you kind of inherently like leave another path behind and you just have to watch a version of yourself sail away on this ghost ship. Um, and so I just spent a lot of time like obsessing over this ghost ship and a novel kind of came out of it. Mm -hmm. So that is ultimately the inspiration for the book. Great. So we have a big audience. There's got to be some questions out there. Any questions? Right there, yes. Um, so I'm always interested in process, so like cosmos that inspired you. But when you actually sat down, once you were like parallel universes, um, <laughs> when you actually sat down, did you start with the bigger idea of parallel universe and the ghost ship, or did you start with character? Like, what was your end 
to this particular story? I think I started with character, and I wanted to sort of talk about these characters who were all flawed in their own ways. Um, and I wanted to sort of, um, I, character and setting, I think. A lot of people who have read this book, I, I think I can give you a little bit of a spoiler. I don't know whether I should, don't, I should, okay. Be okay. careful. Well, like a, a couple of people are saying I shouldn't, okay. So um, I think the emphasis, I think the emphasis is, you've got like these two different sort of storylines. You've got like this parallel world that people are obsessed with and then you've got like this microcosm of like a tiny community in like Connecticut and this small group of friends. And it was, the challenge was sort of like, how do I kind of thread these two storylines or these two ideas together? So. So character was just like a really easy point of reference for me. And I like character-driven novels, and I like writing character-driven stuff. So that was, I think, the, the meat of like what I focused on. Mm-hmm. Great. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to position a young brown girl as the protagonist of a young adult novel? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting since this book came out yesterday. Um, but also, <laughs> but also like in the in the past few months, people have been reaching out to me on Twitter, um, which is not one of my favorite places typically, but like I, but I have been getting, it's a really interesting way to communicate with just people who are interested in books. I think Mm -hmm. it's like a great sort of place for the publishing and writing community. But a lot of people have been reaching out to me and saying, you know, when I was 16 years old, people my age, you know, and not necessarily teenagers, I would have basically died to see a, a brown girl on the cover of a novel. Um, and there was something that someone said to me like the other day, literally made me cry, where um, she was like, I, I picked up this book and showed it to my friend and pointed out this brown girl, and she was like, that's me. That's me when I was 16. Oh. Um, and that just meant the world to me, because when I was 16, when I was a teenager, I was just like... Um, desperate to see characters like me between the pages of the books that I loved. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is really cool to be able to create that, you know? Um, Yeah. And I think it's also just sort of, I think it's like a, like a quietly radical thing in this day and age to have like a brown protagonist of a novel. Yeah. Of a YA novel. Sorry. Any other questions? Right over here. Yes. Yes. I want to know how much of Tower is you. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I think people always think your first book is, like, kind of semi-autobiographical. Um, the, the only thing that Tara and I really have in common is I went to a high school in Connecticut that was predominantly white. I think there may be a couple of people from that high school in this audience. Oh, there's, there's, we went to high school together. She was the other brown girl. It's totally, so we were the two brown girls in our high school. Um, uh... The but the rest of it is like I think my mom probably wants you to know that she never joined a cult. Um, my my it's, it's true she's not white she's not white and she didn't join a cult. Um, it's true. It is true. You can see her right there. Um, my my dad does not own an Indian restaurant. However, if he did, we'd have free catering at this event. So and he's a great be, cook. He is an excellent, he's an amazing cook. chef. He's a very good cook. <laughs> it's... I thought I saw another question. Yes, right here, Julie. Um, how easy or hard was it to access the teenage voice? Mm-hmm. Um, this okay. That's a really good question. So when I you're welcome. Um, so it's 
Did so, everyone hear the question? Is everyone hearing the questions in the back? I think you should repeat that. I'll go ahead yeah. and repeat. How easy or hard was it to um, kind of assume the teenage voice? Well, it's interesting. When I wrote this book, I wasn't thinking of it as either YA or adult. And when it was sent out to publishing houses, it was sent out to both um, YA imprints as well as adult imprints. And it's kind of like it fell somewhere in the middle. So I do think, at least to me, I'm not a teenager and I haven't been for a very long time. But I think like being a teenager, at least what it meant for me when I was a teenager, is kind of feeling everything um, with a kind of novelty because everything is new and with an intensity, but also like a raw vulnerability. And the reason I could write this book uh, during the time that I did is because I felt like I had regressed into my teenage self um, for a very short period of time. Uh, and I think that happens to all of us. I think like it was just a period of like very raw vulnerability. And I, I hadn't felt that way since I was in high school. So I hope the voice is authentically teenage. I don't know. Any other questions? Oh, yes, sir. Something about um, what you said earlier about never seeing people who look like you in young adult novels, and I agree with you. I mean, even for me, it's pretty young adult novels are obnoxious people. But I wonder how you respond to, I wonder if you know um, Shannon Yeagle's wonderful young adult novel, I'm Undone, because the, hero, the, the girl teenage hero is an Indian. Mm -hmm. um, she's Indian English, but she's one of the great teenage girl heroines in young adult literature. That book's been out for a while. I wonder if you know the novel, how you respond to a character like that created by somebody who, I'm assuming, Chiron Diego is pretty much like me, just a, a white guy, and she right. created this wonderful Indian book. Mm -hmm. I actually. I haven't read the novel, so I can't really speak to it. Um, I think that this is like sort of a, a major discussion in the YA community right now, and it's like the conversation about like own voices. Mm -hmm. And uh, people often ask me, like you know, as a writer of color or as a person of color, how do you feel about people who are you know not of a particular ethnic group writing about that particular ethnic group? And I think uh, you know, different people have different opinions on this. I think as long as you're doing the research and you're really doing your homework and you're admitting the fact that you like everybody can't know everything and I think we have to have like a humility around that um, then it's okay I think the problem uh, is is about like inauthenticity there was a list during Asian American History Month of 10 popular Asian American books written like, like, like the you know written in the past decade and all of them had been written by white authors mm. and um, that to me is is sort of not ideal because I feel like you know there are a lot of there are a lot of books written by Asian authors that should probably have been publicized on that list. So I think it's a very nuanced topic that I don't wouldn't be able to like take on, and I think that's a that's a larger discussion um, in the publishing world. Um, yeah. Yes, right here. So I had the benefit of reading part of the novel before this one that supposedly nobody wanted. That was so riveting. I but I was on deadline, so I couldn't finish it, but it was riveting. And my question to you is, how are you so prolific? Like, you write so quickly and so beautifully. I, I've almost never seen that talent before. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, the, question, the question was, how are you so prolific? And <laughs> for those way in the back who might not have heard, um, where does that come from, Aditi? I mean, I think the answer is not going to be particularly like romantic or sexy. 
Uh, I think it comes from two places. I actually worked in an office. Uh, I don't know if any of my coworkers from Marketcast are here. Oh my, yeah, Natalie's here. Um, I worked in an office where I based, and I worked as a, I worked as a journalist and a researcher for many years. And you're basically churning out pages on a deadline, and you don't have time for that nitty gritty perfection. You just have to sort of do it. So that's part of it. Like you know, that was a good training. Um, but I also just find that it was only when I started writing full time that I realized I think I am more introverted than I ever thought I was. Um, I really just relish it and it's like this meditative practice that I just come back to day after day after day and I just love it, you know? So I think I'm prolific because it's sort of like a weird obsession and I really just, it gives me a sense, I feel like uh, it, it's like, my writing, you know when people talk about their books like this is like my baby, I feel like my writing has like parented me in a way. Like it's made me more patient, it's made me like kind of like an adult in certain ways. Um, and it, I think it just brings out better qualities in me. So that's why I do it and I think that's why I just keep doing it. Also I am really afraid to have to go back into an office. <laughs> And so, like, it just keeps that, fear is a very good motivator. I have a question about Tara as a character. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, you know, the book is working with this theme of the, the sort of ghost ship, the mirror planet. How does that affect Tara's self-concept? We were talking a little bit about this before, and I thought it was really interesting, the perspective you had on, on how that shapes her how she sees herself. Yeah, I mean, I think we think of the gaze as being gendered. I mean, we always talk about the yeah. male gaze, but I also, I think if you're a person of color or part of any marginalized group and you're sort of the minority within a larger majority, you are constantly objectifying yourself mm -hmm. and you're con you learn to see yourself through the eyes of others. And um, I think this idea of like a mirror self that Tara thinks is like perfect and so much mm -hmm. better than her and has all the answers is basically, it's a metaphor for her essentially objectifying herself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yes, right back there. Hey, Tan. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I think just before you started reading, that this book came after you had already written the novel and weren't able to sell it. But I wonder, do you feel, in retrospect, there's any kind of continuity between the two, dramatically, or a process that you from yeah, I mean, the book was ultimately about um, the big themes were it was about the unknown, you know, and it was about the, the spheres that we can't access. Um, and there was like a big theme of like death and just like what happens after you die. And maybe it was I mean, it, it was like a first novel, like it's probably not the best idea to attack something quite so ambitious with your first novel. Um, and I think this book too, Mirror in the Sky, is about the unknown and it's about a different unknown. So I think thematically and about sort of the paths that we don't take and like what happens to those paths. Um, so I think in terms of theme, it was, it had similar themes because these are ideas that I am sort of very curious about personally. Um, in terms of setting and characters, genre, it was a totally different thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, right here. Yeah, I'm gonna Cleverly sneak two questions into one question. Hi. Hi. I know, right? <laughs> I know. There's like lots of them in this room. I know. <laughs> I bought one. Um, so the first question is, 
Was it a conversation? Is this uh, a spec novel, a speculative novel, or is this contemporary? And how do you navigate that? So that's the first question. I want to kind of hear how that went in the pitching to agents and the pitching to publishers. And then the second question is, does the book choose the author, or does the author choose the book? <laughs> that's a big one. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> you might have to remind me of the second one. OK, I don't remember it, but I'll try. OK. I can remind you. You can. That's, that's what we're here for. Um, so I feel, OK, so the books that I love the most are kind of cross-genre, and they just are, they combine a lot of different elements. Um, and so. I think that when publishing houses, uh, there were a lot of when I when I went out with a book, you know, to agents, a lot of agents loved it, but they were like, "But is it YA? Is it adult? Is it literary? Is it commercial? Is it sci-fi? Is it spec we, we don't know." Um, but they were like, "We like it," you know. And then it went out to publishing houses, and it was like, it was the same thing. It was like, "How the hell are we going to sell this book?" Um, but I actually think a lot of readers are sort of want something that's a little bit different. And I think that we have a tendency to, I think it's like we genreify a lot these days in film and in literature and just in art in general. But I think people want to see sort of like a mixture of things and a mishmash of things. Um, and that has always been the stuff that challenges me and kind of like keeps me on my toes and that I'm interested in. So that is the kind of thing that I wanted to explore. Um, your second question, does, does the author choose the book or the book choose the author? Yeah. Um, that's a really tough one. I don't know. I feel like... Uh, I, I feel like this book just sort of, so the first book that I, that I talked about that just took, you know, like such a long time to write and then just, it just was a disaster. I mean, it wasn't, it was, I, I still have such an affection for that manuscript, but, um, it just, you know, wasn't there. This book, I feel like I wrote in a frenzy. Mm -hmm. It just, and Jolene remembers. I remember that time because it was just coming so easily. Like, it was just, it almost felt like it was the book, right? You know, that, that, that this book chose you in a I, sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's like, but I don't, the weird thing is like people are like, do you remember writing? I don't really remember. Like, I wrote it over the course of like three and a half months. Mm -hmm. And then it was, and I wrote it for myself. And I was like, this is probably not going to sell and probably no one's going to want to read it. And then I, on a whim, I was applying for jobs because I, I worked in the studio system as a researcher and I was simultaneously, like after I finished the manuscript, I was like applying for jobs and I think I was like offered a job at like a studio mm -hmm. type of thing. And I was like, well, I guess I might as well take it. And I remember calling my dad on the way home from the interview and I'm like, I think they're going to offer it to me. And I was crying. Um, <laughs> and then like, like within, I sent out a query and within 48 hours I had an offer of representation. So it just like moved so, it came out so quick, it moved so quick. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, I think like looking at it in terms of a novel choosing you is sort of an interesting way of like framing it, but I just know that this just came out, mm -hmm. you know, the way it did in kind of one piece. Oh, we've got two questions. So we'll start with you and then go back there. Um, so I'm just fascinated to hear you speak about your process and so when you had the idea you know the first kernel you started working on character and all that did you have an outline did you have any kind of a no. Um, and the funny thing is I, I just recently finished another manuscript and I had to outline just 
the shit out of it, you know? Like, it was just a, a ton of outlining. I don't particularly, like, I have a broad sense. Like, I, I jot down, like, in a notepad a couple of sheets of, like, what every chapter is vaguely going to address. But for this, I didn't really have an outline. It was very stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And there, and then we'll come back there. Yes? So for the record, the first book you wrote that you say was a disaster. Natalie read it too, so. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. It was, I read it in a day. Mm -hmm. it, I just could not put it down. It was excellent. And then the publisher liked it and started tweaking it, and I read the version that they wanted her to do. And they destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> so I would not give up on that first book. The original version of it, it was so emotional and beautiful and passionate and I mean it touched all my buttons. <laughs> 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 driven and smart and yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but in the way you wrote it the first time. Uh, Except for you have to I bet you this thing. Yeah. Thanks Natalie. It's so funny when you know like uh, you were gonna ask me a question my ideal reader. That was the next question. Um, but like Natalie is like one of my ideal readers because uh -huh. I just, she's. I, I, Do you envision when you're, when you're. I don't really envision like, I mean, I, but Natalie is like one of those people where she's like such a generous reader, but mm -hmm. she knows what she likes and she knows what she doesn't like. And I think that's an ideal reader, you know? Mm-hmm. I think we had a question right there. Yeah, I'm just curious um, uh, about process again, like outlining, funding. Um, why did you have to outline for your second book and can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. Great. Um, I needed to outline for the second book because it is a lot plottier and it's um, it's still character driven because I like character driven stuff but the emphasis is much more on plot. Um, my second book which is coming out in 2017 uh, the date hasn't been set yet it is it deals with again similar themes it is a feminist fantasy set in ancient India and it is loosely based on Alexander the Great's invasion of, um, of India. So it, it deals with themes of colonialism and feminism. Um, and that's really all I can say at this point. And do you think you'll return to the YA space? Or how do you think of yourself as a writer? Like you talked a little bit about blurring those genres and those lines when the book was kind of first going out in the query stage. Like what do you think about the future. Well, it's like I I just after I finished this book, I I talked to um my agent about wanting to do something different. She was like, "Well, it's really risky, so you really have to think about it." And I just wondered if also that is kind of like tied to race and gender in some ways too. I feel like, you know, an author like Dave Eggers can like reinvent himself with every book and nobody mm -hmm. really says anything about that. Mm -hmm. Um and I think like once you've written a book, the idea of like writing the same book again and again and again, mm -hmm. it's not something that I want to do. I think a lot of authors do it and they do it really well. Right. Um, and there's certain themes that I think will be recurring in everything I do, but I don't, I, I don't know, like I don't think of things in terms of like YA. When I pick up a book, it's like, do I like it or do I not like it? Mm -hmm. It's not about whether it's like literary fiction or commercial. Like, did I enjoy it? Was that, did that book take me on a journey? And that's the kind of stuff that I love to read, so mm -hmm. that's the stuff I hope to create. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Or does that mean it's time for cake? <laughs> Any other questions from the audience? Carrie, are we? 
Good on time? That's perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aditi, for sharing this novel with us. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.